0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Steinmetz. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from Western Connecticut State University. And I'm talking today with Dr. Kevin Gutzman. He's a professor of history and non-Western cultures here at WestCon. And he is, I believe, the most prolific author on campus and at least the most successful author on campus. He's written five books, including, uh, I believe his first one was Who Killed the Constitution, which got a lot of uh, readership and uh, conversation going. Today we're gonna talk about his latest book about Thomas Jefferson. It's called Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, A Radical Struggle to Remake America. And Kevin has been studying the Founders and the Constitution for much of his career. It seems like a natural progression to Thomas Jefferson for you. Is that how it felt, uh, Kevin? Well,
1: actually, my first book was about Revolutionary Virginia, and I had in mind that I would write a book that avoided Jefferson and Hmm. James Madison. Uh, Essentially, what happened was that in the 1970s, there was a vogue among historians for... um, social and cultural history. And so we ended up with town studies of basically every significant town in New England and all kinds of towns in uh, New York, New Jersey, and so on. And when it came to revolutionary and colonial Virginia, people tended to be absorbed in the capital G great, capital M men. So I thought, well, I need to correct that. And my first uh, book, my dissertation was called uh, Virginia's American Revolution. It was about the intellectual reconstruction of Mm -hmm. Virginia as a result of breaking with the British monarchy. On the other hand, um, I've since written two books in constitutional history and one about James Madison, and essentially in all four of those, uh, Jefferson kept coming up. Mm -hmm. So there came to be a point when I thought, I have a lot of things to say about Jefferson that other people don't say, and so here's the result.
0: Mm -hmm. And as you've said to me, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and maybe this is why he kept coming up in your books, previous books, he has uh, an effect on us or things that he thought about and did are still touching us and and not changing, but uh, having an effect on our lives day to day, every day in America. Oh, certainly.
1: Well, so successful was Jefferson as a revolutionary statesman that we take much of what he thought for granted. So for example, he in 1777 is a member of a committee that was charged with drafting reforms of Virginia's colonial legal system, proposed a bill for establishing religious freedom, and ultimately in 1786, Mainly at the instigation of his friend Madison, the Virginia General Assembly did adopt this bill, which became the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, now part of Virginia's Constitution. And that made Virginia the first officially secular government in the history of the world. Mm. Nowadays, we take for granted that one distinctive feature of American society is that the government doesn't tell you. You must be a Lutheran, you must pay taxes to support the Methodists, you must uh, subscribe to particular tenets of Roman Catholicism, or else we're going to burn you, whip you, throw you off a building, as we see on our televisions in other parts of the world every day. So um, that just seems obvious, commonsensical to Americans. In Jefferson's day, it wasn't commonsensical, and uh, we are the
0: beneficiaries of
1: the fact that he decided this needed to
0: be done. Mm -hmm. And people still come to America, right? We meet them ourselves who who value that.
1: Yeah, actually, I regularly encounter people who, for example, recently I had a conversation with a fellow who's from Bangladesh, and he asked me uh, about... The work I was doing, and I said, well, I've just finished this project on Jefferson, and we got to chatting about Bangladesh, and of course, they've had religious wars in the Indian subcontinent since 1948, and uh, Bangladesh became an independent part of the Indian subcontinent because of religious differences with the rest of India, and so he said, well, <laughs> this is actually the main reason why I immigrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, it's it's obviously highly beneficial, and uh, Jefferson thought, besides practical, this also was philosophically a mandatory um, reform, because he thought that you couldn't really, by mandating it, make people subscribe to your religion anyway. Mm -hmm. You could only make them, he said, hypocrites or liars. So if you say to someone, uh, I'm going to whip you unless you say you believe X— well, she's liable to say, I believe X. Mm-hmm. Does that really mean she believes X? So what have you actually accomplished? And um, from Jefferson's point of view, the, the, the liberty itself was part of respecting people's um, a dignity. But besides that, it, it wasn't good for the religion to mm-hmm. be trying to enforce it. So here we have, again, one of these, I think, three or four fundamental principles of American Society, and it's, I think, ultimately preferable to
0: the alternatives. Mm-hmm. Was he the first one to think about that or uh, talk about it? or
1: Well, I describe in the book some of what we can infer were antecedents to his thought. Mm-hmm. So for example, he uh, had in his house, Monticello, oil paintings of what he called his Trinity. And uh, one of those fellows was John Locke, who mm-hmm. famously provided a kind of theoretical underpinning for the Glorious Revolution of 1688 in, in England, but also was a radical thinker when it came to matters of government and religion. And Jefferson was highly influenced by him, and Francis Bacon was another one. He similarly was uh, interested in this idea, the general idea of free thought, free subscription and so on. So um, it's not that Jefferson had a Newtonian moment here, but among prominent statesmen, he stood out. Mm -hmm. And actually, although in his own time, he was very highly esteemed by his fellow Virginians, uh, still, if you take the major elements of the program that I lay out in the book, You can find virtually every one of the other people in the Virginia political hierarchy disagreeing with him Mm -hmm. on some of those points. So, for example, Patrick Henry disagreed with him vehemently about this religion issue. Um, His friend uh, John Taylor of Caroline disagreed with him about the effect that slave owning had on slave owners. Uh, His friend Madison disagreed with him about the need for um, periodic constitutional, major constitutional revision. Um, essentially, Jefferson was unique in this sense. And the in, one interesting thing about him is at each of these points where he's disagreeing with these other people who are among the leaders of the most important state, and maybe people who are listening don't realize this, but... If a contemporary state, that is if a state in 2017 were to have the same weight in the Electoral College as Virginia had in Mm -hmm. 1792, it would have to have as much population as uh, California plus New York. Mm. So Virginia was predominant uh, in a way that no state is today, and that's why most of the most significant leaders of the revolution were Virginians. Hmm. Uh, But anyway, when you come to one of those major points where he's at divergence with some of his fellows, um, what you always see is that he's to their left. So nowadays, people might think, well, Thomas Jefferson, that's a conservative image because he stood for a certain idea about, for example, the structure of the Federal Union or um, the way that government ought to respect people's religion. Even in nowadays, the trend mm-hmm. is we don't want government to uh, defer to people's religious judgments. Um, that's the society's current bent. Um, but anyway, um, in his day, all these reforms were substantial. And again, when he disagreed with his friends, he would be to their left. I, I can't think of a point when he had a major um, disagreement with any of them, where he was to the right. So, That's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is really um, bracing. And what happened basically by the end of Jefferson's career was that most of what he had advocated had been uh, implemented, and then it became just kind of Americanism. Mm-hmm. You know, so nowadays in America, well, it's kind of truism among political philosophers and historicals, uh, historians of political thought that there's really not a right in the European sense in the United States. Um, what there is is a kind of whiggish uh, version of society and politics that was instantiated in American uh, government during the revolutionary period. And then there are people who've wanted to move away from that over time. So the people we call conservatives are really people who are saying, well, no, let's let's refer to that revolutionary dispensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to a large degree, the revolutionary dispensation is what Jefferson thought. Mm -hmm. Not entirely, but Mm -hmm. largely.
0: So you uh, wrote this book and you concentrated on five of his big ideas, right? Right. And um, do you want to go through those, uh, just list them, and then we'll go through each one?
1: Well, first, before we do that, let me say... Um, in the introduction, I lay out some of the m- reforms, some major, some minor, that he managed to achieve at a stroke. So it's not that the five chapter, main chapters in the book are about the five most important things he was involved in. Mm-hmm. It's that they're the ones that run through his whole career. So for example, um, getting rid of the feudal land tenures, mm-hmm. that is getting rid of the legal system that kept ownership of... Virginia real estate concentrated in a very few hands, arguably is one of the two or three most important things he did mm-hmm. but he just proposed a law and then they passed it so there's not a there's not a big story mm-hmm. um, but that's Very significant. Virginia, like the other colonies, or actually more than some of them, was a monarchical society when the revolution started. And one sense in which that's true is that they had the established church of which the King of England was the head. Mm -hmm. And another thing is that they had these feudal land tenures, which primogeniture and entail meant that there were about 85 families that owned about two-thirds of the land in today's Virginia. So each of those families owned about 300 square miles, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying each of those families owned about half of one of today's Connecticut counties. Mm-hmm. So that's as if 16 people owned Connecticut. And Jefferson thought, well, we can't have a republic if we have 85 people who own 300 square miles each, yeah. and then we have you know 600,000 who don't have anything. So um, he proposed that they should eliminate these legal doctrines that meant that if you were one of the current owner, well, entail meant that if you were the current owner of one of these 300 square mile plots, uh, you couldn't sell any of it. So the point was that the the state had decided that in the generation after you, there had to be another person who was in the same highly prestigious uh, privileged position as you, and that mm-hmm. that would be perpetual. And so Jefferson again thought, well, this is—it's impossible to have a republic where you have eighty-five. Even though one of them was Thomas Jefferson, right. it's impossible to have a republic where you have this. So again, as I said, he proposed getting rid of it, and they got rid of it. Mm-hmm. He said I arguably that's more important than two or three of the chap- main chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not a detailed story. So I think it's very interesting, and actually the the. The thing about that reform is you can see in it evidence that Jefferson thought about the structure of his society and then decided, okay, since it's highly hierarchical and the authority in it is hereditary, you're inheriting this land, and that means you're inheriting the the virtually automatic election to the House of Burgesses. And that means you're inheriting a position on the vestry that ran the parish of, and each county was one parish, more or less. Mm -hmm. So it's as if you're inheriting a position on the committee that ran your parish of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And um, you're inheriting, of course, the gigantic Mm slaveholding. And Jefferson thought, well, we need to get rid of this established church of which I'm on the vestry. I inherited that from my dad and my kids would inherit it from me. We need to get rid of the tie to the king in the first place. We need to get rid of this system of land holdings. And then, uh, and this is one chapter in the book, um, we need to get rid of slavery. Slavery should go. Mm-hmm. So um, the book has five main chapters that are each about one of the main themes that run through at least a substantial portion of his career. And those are about federalism, which is the principle in constitutional government that the system is decentralized. So in America, that means that the states have primary political authority, not the central government. Uh, And then the second chapter, the main chapter, is about freedom of conscience. So it wasn't necessarily religion because Jefferson believed in freedom for irreligious people too. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the third one is about um, what I, I entitled the chapter colonization. So that's the solution he arrived at for the problem of having a biracial black and white society in Virginia in the wake of slavery. The fourth chapter is about assimilation, which he thought should be the policy of the Americans toward the Indians. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's one on, um, well, I entitled it uh, the University of Virginia, but really it's about establishing public education. In colonial Virginia, there was no public education. Mm -hmm. So while in New England, there was... The first society we know of where they had essentially universal literacy. So I tell my undergraduate students if you lived in colonial Connecticut and you were a colonist, not an American Indian, and you were not retarded or blind, you could read. Mm-hmm. Everybody could read. Um, on the other hand, in Virginia, we think when the revolution started, about half of adult white males of sound mind could write their names. Mm. So basically half the, com- the place, well, half the white males were illiterate. Mm-hmm. By law, all the blacks who were slaves, now some blacks were free, of course, but by law, the black slaves were not to be taught to read. Mm-hmm. And then the women didn't get instruction either. Mm-hmm. So Jefferson, again, as in regard to land tenure's thought, well, how can we have a republic if most everybody's ignorant right. and can't become acquainted with political goings on or familiar with constitutional principles and historic examples that might empower them to defend their freedom over time? We need to have public education.
0: And he was right, right? You can't have American democracy without.
1: Um, no, and people literacy. yeah, and people would um Comment on that later, and again, it seems a truism today, and we take for granted that every state has not only public education but mandatory attendance mm-hmm. uh, but in Jefferson's day, this wasn't taken for granted in fact he he failed to have his state adopt public primary and secondary schools, so at his death, this was still an aspiration, but he did succeed in having them establish the University of Virginia- mm-hmm. which was unique, and we'll come back to that yep.
0: You started the book with uh, federalism, right? Right. Is that because that was his longest standing, uh, biggest idea?
1: Well, I uh, endeavored to arrange the five main chapters chronologically. Hmm. So Jefferson first became known to people outside Virginia as the author of a 1774 pamphlet called A Summary View of the Rights of British America. Mm -hmm. And basically what Jefferson did in A Summary View of the Rights of British America was lay out a federal vision of the British Empire Mm -hmm. with the monarchy as the glue that held the whole thing together. But... With each part of the empire, whether it was uh, Hanover or the Bahamas or Connecticut or Great Britain, having its local assembly. So mm-hmm. he he's here down. He was here downgrading the Parliament to the status of local assembly, right? Mm-hmm. Assembly for Great Britain and Ireland, um, and Jefferson insisted on this. He thought that there was a lot of justification in it in Virginia's colonial history, and as people were wont to do in the period of the Revolution, he tended to generalize from his own colony's history to the entirety of North America. Um, And after, well, of course, in the Declaration of Independence, he assumes this too. He, He says at the end of it, in the operative section, so uh, these colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, not the United States one entity, not Mm -hmm. America, not a country, but 13 free and independent states. Mm -hmm. And a state in modern political science, the term was actually introduced by Machiavelli in the 16th century, but what it um, denoted was Sovereign entity that is something over which there was no superior in other words, not Andalusia in Spain or Yorkshire in the United Kingdom But Spain or the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So he was claiming in other words the Congress was claiming that uh, Delaware and Georgia and Rhode Island were on a par with Sweden and Russia and and the United Kingdom
0: and in the book you say uh, that when he wrote, we the people, that is, uh, he was really referring to the states, right? Not as individuals? Uh, Well, we the people is in the Constitution. He didn't
1: write that. Uh, But- We'll just edit that part out. That's okay. It's actually a very common idea that Jefferson, (laughs) people, uh, this, uh, we don't wanna edit that part out because People have an idea that Jefferson was super important, and Mm. so they commonly credit him with writing the Constitution. In fact, uh, he didn't have any role in it. He was in France. But uh, every semester, I tell my introductory American history students here at WestCon that Thomas Jefferson didn't have any role in writing the Constitution. I'm telling you that he didn't have any role in writing the Constitution. Every semester, I tell my students, he didn't have any role in writing the Constitution. And then on the final, they always tell me that he wrote the <laughs> Constitution. I guarantee you, you're going to do that, and they always do. They, I always have some people who say, well, of course, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Constitution. And on one hand, you think, well, what were you sleeping when I was talking? Hmm. But on the other hand, is, there's just this image of him as this kind of demigod of the revolution, you know, really. Uh, and of course the more important the only person in the revolution who's more important is George Washington Mm -hmm. he's but but uh Jefferson certainly did think that after the break with the British monarchy the situation remained the same so that Eventually, the Confederation would, would replace the British monarchy in his understanding of the relationship among the states. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, the federal government would replace the Confederation government. But through his entire life, all the way down to the last significant political letter he wrote, he always thought, Virginia comes first. And then we have this relationship with these other states because it's good for us. Mm-hmm. But of course, Implicit in that is if it weren't good for us, we could get rid of it as we got rid of George III. And Mm -hmm. that's what the Declaration of Independence says. So he did think first first comes federalism. But then he didn't think that state governments were the be-all and Mm end-all. Within the state, he wanted to decentralize as well. So this federalism principle is significant when you're talking about the federal relationships, mm-hmm. whether it's among the colonies in the mother country and whatever, or whether it's among the uh, colonies um, or whether it's uh, in the Confederation or in the Federal Union. But when it came to internal Virginia matters, he wanted there to be local districts in which uh, you'd have a local coroner and a local sheriff and local school and local, you know, the reason why this is preferable to the alternative model of starting with the center, having all authority, and then parceling some out is that in the Jeffersonian model, the average individual could shape his own community. Mm-hmm. You could get together with your friends and talk about, well, uh, whom should we hire to be the teacher, and where do we want the building, and and if Hartford or, Bo- or uh, Washington were telling you this, then... You and I and probably everybody we knew would just have to sit back and see what they told us to do. Mm-hmm. So that looked a lot like the monarchical model. And that's why he was just viscerally opposed. Mm-hmm. There are repeated instances in his career when he is just not only is he opposed to imposition of what he thinks are. Um, uh, Kind of irrelevant to them policies by distant authority but he's just angry about mm-hmm. it he just thinks he thinks it's inimical to the whole revolutionary project and he says at various times in, in the context of the alien sedition acts crisis of 1798 in the context of the missouri crisis in 1819 and 20 um he says this threatens the revolution. Mm-hmm. You might think the revolution, but King George isn't coming back. But that wasn't the issue. The revolution wasn't to get rid of King George. The revolution was to establish that Virginia was a sovereign entity. It mm-hmm. controlled itself. Nobody else was telling it what to do unless uh, in some case in which Virginia had, uh, through a careful consideration, decided to delegate some power to, say, the Congress uh, through the Constitution. Um, That's the main uh, topic that Jefferson was concerned in, and are concerned with, and that's why it's the main subject Mm -hmm. in the book.
0: Did he see the Constitution, the the, what we see as the rights of the Constitution and the amendments, uh, as applying to Virginia equally as they do everywhere else at that time, or was that something that's uh, been an evolution?
1: Well. Uh, We, in 2017, don't really live under the original Constitution. Mm -hmm. We live under um, the Revolution of 1937, which is a kind of specialist talk for the more or less complete inversion of the federal system I've been describing Mm -hmm. that happened during and and since the New Deal. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, we take for granted that you know, if there's a bad rainstorm in Louisiana, the president ought to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea that the president should have an opinion about a rainstorm in Louisiana is a completely anti-Jeffersonian idea. Now, when it comes to the individual rights um, that are enumerated, or actually there's some in the main body of the Constitution, and then there are several in the amendments since, um, Jefferson believed that those were limitations on the federal government. And in fact, he said at various times that the the freedom of religion that was established by the establishment free exercise clauses was a a limitation on the federal government. And we have retained authority over these questions within Virginia. Hmm. Um, And when it came to freedom of the press, well, the freedom of the press is a very valuable principle. And we have retained uh, authority over the press where it ought to be in the state legislatures. So Jefferson's vision, again, was an entirely federal one. Mm -hmm. Now within Virginia, as I said before, he was a radical, he was a libertarian. He thought, for example, when it came to the most important things, the government shouldn't say anything about religion at all. And uh, he had similar views about other um, individual liberties questions. So he was in favor of freedom, but he wanted people to arrive at these policies in a Republican way, not not as we're accustomed to mm-hmm. in 2017, by having a few people meet in secret in the Supreme Court's uh, conference chambers and then announce what the policy will be for all 320 million of us. That mm-hmm. again, that's entirely unlike Jefferson's mm-hmm. idea of Republican government. Mm-hmm. We ought to be having a conversation. So, for example, I'll give you an, I'll give you an illustration of the distinction between the system we live with now and the one that Jefferson uh, contemplated. We had until, what, three years ago, an ongoing debate all over the country about gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And so several states had legalized gay marriage. For example, ours, Connecticut, legalized Mm -hmm. gay marriage. On the other hand, several states decided not to legalize gay marriage. And public opinion was moving on that question toward recognition of gay marriage. This was a perfectly Jeffersonian development. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that people would change their minds about a, an important question, that some states would begin to change their policies, that others would not do so at the time, that's the way a federal system mm-hmm. looks. Mm-hmm. And so that was the system playing out in a healthy way. But then, of course, and I predicted this would happen 20 years ago, mm. then the federal courts just said, all right, every state is going to have the same policy because the Constitution requires it, which of course the Constitution doesn't mention it. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, I predicted 20 years ago that that would happen because this is just the way our system works now. If, if faculty members on, on faculties of elite law schools decide they favor a particular position, eventually federal courts will mm-hmm. proclaim that the Constitution requires it. Jefferson actually lamented this in his day. So a, a big portion of the federalism chapter of my book it's about his decrying the behavior of his own cousin, Chief Justice John Marshall, on the Supreme Court in essentially concocting new meanings for the Constitution.
0: He made it up, right? Well, that's, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but and, and kind of the way that the idea of a federal uh, right to gay marriage was made up. Mm-hmm. Again, um, leaving aside the question of the policy, and I, mm-hmm. happen, I have my own opinions about it, but I would have preferred strongly to see it play out in a Republican way than just having one of these pronouncements. So Jefferson, uh, we could, you know, I could name you several cases that he expressly disapproved of Mm -hmm. because he thought these judges aren't supposed to have this role in our system. This is centralizing and and it's, and he repeatedly said, the judiciary is the least Republican, the most removed, the unaccountable branch of the general government and he would have preferred to have these decisions be made by the accountable branch of the state government or preferably diffused down into the lower levels, mm-hmm. uh, subsections of the states and have people make these kinds of decisions locally. So uh, this is an area in which uh, the system doesn't work anything like what he
0: thought it mm-hmm. ought to be, mm-hmm. uh, anything like the way he thought it ought to work. It's interesting. And the, uh, so your second chapter is about um, freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience. And then uh, you go into the um, question of colonization, right? Right. Right. And colonization uh, is
1: an obscure sounding term. People probably have never encountered it unless they've read about Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 19th century, colonization was a very popular political movement. It was akin to, say, the National Rifle Association or the National Organization for Women <laughs> today. It, it, there was a an organization called the American Colonization Society, and the, the first president of the American Colonization Society was former president and chief author of the Constitution and Bill of Rights, James Madison. Madison headed the American Colonization Society for a decade, and then he was succeeded in that office by Henry Clay, who was maybe the most popular politician ever not elected president. Mm -hmm. Um, And what the American Colonization Society stood for was the project of trying to find some other place to which free black people from America could be sent. Mm -hmm. So how did Jefferson end up with the idea of colonization? The answer is that uh, people are wrong to think that Jefferson was a hypocrite. And, of course, it's very commonly said, you know, these guys are hypocrites. They said all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fetch my slippers and mm-hmm. start me a fire. But uh, that was, that's not correct. People like Jefferson thought that slavery was wrong, and they tried to do something about it. And, in fact, during the Revolution, the northern states either uh, in Massachusetts and Vermont got rid of slavery or in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. New York, New Jersey— Rhode Island, they adopted what were called gradual emancipation acts, which provided for slavery's eventual disappearance. And then in Virginia, which is just south of that tranche, um they had repeated discussions of this question. So Jefferson, in his autobiography, which he wrote when he was in his 70s, describes being in the House of Burgesses, which was Colonial Virginia's only elected body. It was the, the lower house of the colonial legislature. Being in the House of Burgesses when he was in his mid-20s and co-sponsoring a bill that was sponsored by his senior and cousin, uh, Richard Bland. Bland was a highly respected member of the Burgesses. Hmm. He, he repeatedly was chairman of major committees. He did a lot of important work over a long period of time. But Jefferson says, um, I had never heard a, so senior member attacked the way that Bland was attacked that day, one after another. The other uh, Burgesses stood up and called him an enemy to his country mm-hmm. and all kinds of negative things. And Jefferson said, I concluded that Virginians weren't ready to abolish slavery. So the bill they had proposed would have meant an eventual end to it, as mm-hmm. happened in Connecticut. So what to do? Well, Jefferson decided uh, he would take steps um incremental steps thereafter. So, for example, when he was president in 1806, he, in his annual message to Congress, noted that the Constitution said in in Article 4 that Congress could not bar the importation of slaves until 1808. So Jefferson told Congress in 1806, Look, there's this provision that says, beginning in 1808, you can ban importation of slaves. We need to pass that law now. Mm -hmm. So in 1807, Congress passed the law, providing that as of January 1, 1808, it would be a crime to import slaves, and that passed. Mm -hmm. Um, Jefferson, in 1784, I think, uh, proposed excluding uh, slaves—well, excluding slavery from southwestern territories— what we'd now call Alabama, Mississippi, mm. and it failed by one vote. Mm. So that is an interesting counterfactual. What if Congress had banned slavery from Alabama, Mississippi, and so on, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana? Um, one possibility, of course, is that people would have gone ahead and moved there with slaves anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, I think, is has a high likelihood. But in any event, Jefferson tried to get it banned from there. He... Um, also communicated with people over the question, well, what about slavery in Virginia? And uh, one idea, he had two different ideas about this, actually. As far as Virginia was concerned, what to do about slavery, one possibility was what was called diffusion. So Jefferson yeah. bought the argument, and there's dispute among historians about whether this was a, a candid argument or whether it was a, a tactical uh, argument that people made. Um, but he bought the argument that if you kept the slave population in the East Coast states over time it would become a higher and higher portion of the population in those states and he said uh, as the the proportion of the population that's enslaved rises it becomes more unlikely that they'll ever be freed so the alternative that's preferable is to Mm -hmm. have this population diffused across North America he said what, you've, what we've seen so far in American history is that the states with the least slavery were apt to get rid of it immediately, and then the ones with a little more got rid of it slowly, and we in Virginia have talked about it, and so mm-hmm. if we had a lower proportion of our population, so that's one idea. Then the other thing was this colonization why why colonization? Why not just have a, a biracial society? Mm-hmm. And the answer he gave in his one book, which is called Notes on the State of Virginia, he wrote in 1781 or so, said, uh, well, his answer was, um, we, here he's speaking for white Virginians, we are prejudiced against them. I don't see that stopping. He said, they hate us. We give them new reasons every day. So, uh, Slaves could not be freed in Virginia and kept here, without resulting in a race war that would eventuate in the extermination of the one or the other race. Hmm. So he thought if if the slaves were freed, that there'd end up being a race war and there'd be terrible violence. When he wrote that, it was theoretical, but it wasn't long after that when he was in his late forties um, and then in his fifties that there actually was such an event in, in Saint-Domingue, mm-hmm. which is now called Haiti. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the Haitian Revolution, every single white person was either dead or fled. There was not a single living white person in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And, and people like Jefferson looked at that and said, that's it, that's, mm-hmm. that's our fate. So the alternatives to this were, well, do nothing, or, uh, or I should say, do nothing and, uh, find another place to which they could be sent, mm-hmm. and by that's what the word colonization refers to. Mm-hmm. So Jefferson, at various times in the highest political offices, inquired of the British about a place in Canada to which Virginian slaves could be sent, uh, talked to congressmen about a place in today's Midwest mm. where slaves could be sent, had his minister to Great Britain inquire of the British government about sending freed people from America to Sierra Leone, which is in westernmost Africa. Um, Finally, of course, when his former law student and former uh, very close political ally, James Monroe was president, uh, Monroe was kind of sponsor of the establishment of the West African country of Liberia, And the first Liberian settlers were freed blacks from the United States. Mm -hmm. So these uh, people like Monroe still had the idea that this was necessary. In fact, Monroe had been governor of Virginia at the turn of the the 19th century when the greatest slave conspiracy ever to occur in Virginia took place. Hmm. It's called Gabriel's Rebellion. After several participants were hanged, Jefferson... uh, Monroe and Jefferson had a correspondence about this and basically Monroe was saying, we need to find some place, you know, I don't wanna hang mm-hmm. all these people. Mm-hmm. And besides that, um, there likely are others. We can't identify everybody. Right. And in fact, Gabriel said there w- had been a thousand slaves who were mm. ready to participate in this all up and down the James. So the James River runs from basically west of Richmond to the Atlantic. So mm. it's, it's like 180 miles long or something. And, and Gabriel claimed that there had been conspirators all down the river, and they had only identified a few dozen. Mm-hmm. So, so Monroe uh, inquired of Jefferson, and Jefferson said, well, I will look for a place. Mm-hmm. So uh, this was not, in other words, this was not hypocrisy. This was not just language. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on the other hand, I don't want to be understood as excusing Jefferson yep. when it comes to slavery. He owned slaves. He was a spendthrift. When he died, his estate was bankrupt, and yes, it's true that a large share of that debt was um, not owing to anything he had done. He had co signed a loan for a, a near neighbor um, whose progeny ended up marrying into Jefferson's family, uh, and the f- The fellow had been a U.S. senator, governor, president of the Bank of Richmond, then he went bankrupt. (laughs) And so Jefferson was left holding this gigantic debt, about $40,000, which today would be millions. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he couldn't pay it. But most of his debt was just because he had been a spendthrift. He -hmm. he, he liked fine wine and nice paintings and expensive books. And he tore his house down and built it up and tore it down and built it up. And And he was in politics for years and years and years when there was not a salary associated with that. Mm -hmm. So, um, largely it was his fault that his estate was auctioned off at his death. And that meant that many, many people suffered the worst fate a slave could suffer, which was being sold. Mm -hmm. If you were a slave from Virginia and your family had lived at Monticello, you know, a couple of generations, and then you ended up in Alabama, there was nobody there you knew. There was no place there you knew. There was nothing there you knew. you were illiterate by law, you hadn't been taught to read. If you had been able to read and write, you couldn't afford to, to send a letter. Hmm. Um, they didn't have phones, they didn't have email, they didn't have anything. So, this is a fate that he inflicted on nearly 200 people. Mm-hmm. And that's his fault. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, I don't want to be understood as, as excusing this. He thought it was wrong, and he said so. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, what you know the difference between judging contemporary politicians and judging people who lived in the in the distant past mm-hmm. is we have to think uh, when we think about people in the past all right what is their context so is it interesting for example that uh, elizabeth is born princess of england and then she becomes the queen right is that is that surprising you might think well having a monarchy is nonsensical. She's got wealth that nobody can believe. She ought to abolish the monarchy, but she didn't. Mm-hmm. Is that shocking? Uh, it's not shocking. What's shocking is somebody like Jefferson being born, uh, you know, to one of these huge land holdings on the vestry. He's mm-hmm. relying on the king. He's got all these slaves and he decides, you know what? Every one of these needs to go. Mm-hmm. And Or somebody like George Washington who's born into slavery and by the end of his life, He's decided he detests slavery. He, When he died, he had about, about one-third of the people on his estates he couldn't even use. He didn't have any work for them to do. Mm-hmm. But he had decided being sold is the worst thing that can happen to a slave. I'm not selling anybody anymore. We're not doing this here. And then he freed them all in his will, which, by the way, was not good for Martha because suddenly she was living in a house where uh, her food was made, her fire was tended, her... Her room was uh, inhabited by people who would like her to be dead now. <laughs> so other other married men in Washington's and Jefferson's class saw what had happened to Mrs. Washington and decided, you know, maybe freeing them in your will is not the smartest yeah. idea. But um, anyway, so I think it's, it's fascinating that these guys were born into this and then came to the conclusion Again, I don't want the monarchy. I don't want these land tenures. I don't want to be on the vestry. I don't, I don't want slavery. Mm-hmm. I think slavery is detestable. So, he, could, yes, there are things he could have done that he didn't do, but he did a lot, and that's surprising.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're right. It isn't um, well-known, I don't think.
1: No, it isn't. Yeah.
0: And the same with his thoughts about American Indians, Native Americans.
1: right? Well, he actually had different ideas about American Indians. hmm When it came to the slaves, um, he wrote in notes in the state of Virginia that he thought, due to his observation, that it was likely that black people were inferior both in body and in mind. He said, I would like to be dissuaded. And people sent him evidence. Mm -hmm. And when they did, he would write back and say, well, thank you. I'm going to circulate this. On the other, and, and uh, but I think he died still skeptical that blacks were not inferior. He mm-hmm. did think they were inferior, mm-hmm. unlike Madison, who thought this was entirely environmental. If if slaves were degraded, well, we don't let them learn to read. We don't let you know. Jefferson said that there were slaves in in ancient Rome who wrote poetry, and yeah, well, they were taught to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so Madison came to the opposite conclusion. When it came to American Indians, on the other hand, Jefferson had the opposite idea. He thought these people were completely equal to whites there's no reason why they couldn't be part of american society the reason there might be some question in somebody's mind was he said because they are at such a rude cultural level you know so when columbus arrived in the western hemisphere there was no wheel there was no writing there was just it was stone age culture mm-hmm. and jefferson thought so what do we do well educate people teach them to farm like europeans Today, this has the odor of what's called cultural imperialism, but Jefferson uh, believed that if you were a a kind of um, migratory American Indian, you could spend your life traversing a very large area of North America and still live at a very low uh, cultural level and a very low... Uh, material level and why would you want that? Mm -hmm. So he wanted um, to try to enculturate and assimilate American Indians. He wanted them to become just more Americans and it's a really interesting story. He ends up in a a long-running dispute with the leading biologist of the 18th century, a Frenchman, the Comte de Buffon. And Buffon had said that uh, mammals in the Western Hemisphere were degenerate. So he said uh, their animals are smaller, there're fewer of them that this this goes for humans, look at them, they don't have hair on their faces, they're not ardent for their females, they're <laughs> and Jefferson they haven't developed any great uh literary qualities and, and Jefferson said well, the, you know this is all untrue and, and he gave examples from his own experience and from uh stories that people had gathered about the great martial prowess of American Indians and famous uh, speeches that he had witnessed and and uh, he said uh, various other things that went to contradict this. There is a funny story associated with this too. Actually, Jefferson ended up in this uh, an argument not only with Buffon, but with a circle of French biologists who were Buffon followers. Mm-hmm. And one other American who joined Jefferson in this argument was uh, Benjamin Franklin. So mm-hmm. Franklin was in Europe And uh, the European enlightened figures were saying, you know, you you Western Hemisphere types, you're degenerate. And so Franklin had a dinner where he invited a bunch of prominent French thinkers and a bunch of Americans. Mm -hmm. And at one point, this issue came up and and, uh, Franklin said, said, OK, well, if you're a Frenchman, please stand up. Right. So they stood up and then, OK, if you're an American, please stand up. And you look around the table and the Americans were much taller. <laughs> so eh, actually, in the colonial period, if you more or less, if you started in Massachusetts and went south, the farther south you got, the taller people were. Hmm. And in fact, uh, Jefferson was about six foot three. Marshall right. was about six foot four. Washington was about six foot four. Monroe was about six foot four. So they're all my height at a time mm-hmm. when the average person was five foot seven. Right. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, but but the point is uh, Jefferson was very hopeful about the prospects for American Indians, just, you know, for there being a biracial mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. It just happened that he had decided that that couldn't be so when it came to black people, and primarily because slavery had this residue of just he was sure that they hated the whites mm-hmm. and— it is actually remarkable if you think about it. There hasn't really since since emancipation, there wasn't any great wave of black violence on white people. Right. You might have thought there'd be some retribution. Mm-hmm. There really was not anything like that. So that, I think, would be shocking to people like Jefferson.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book that, or said in the book, that he was generally very hopeful and optimistic, right?
1: Yes. Oh, actually, at some points he's just painfully, he's so... Uh, He's such a Pollyanna. Um, his idea that this race thing would just work out—he's mm-hmm. uh, he, he's sure of it, but he doesn't have any real ground for being sure of it. And uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> if you think about the the colonization idea, of course, now we're used to the notion of a biracial or multiracial society, and mm-hmm. this is normal, and it's you know it's not violent. We're all equal citizens. But on the other hand, when slavery ended in Virginia, it ended because the state was conquered by the Union Army. Mm-hmm. A quarter of white men were killed in the war. Mm-hmm. And then, as soon as the occupation ended, or as soon as the war ended, there were 100 years of just brutal subjugation of blacks in mm-hmm. Virginia. Mm-hmm. So, was he wrong that this wasn't gonna work? Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his idea was, uh, again, that uh, we, meaning the white Virginians, uh, you know, we're not gonna tolerate this. And they didn't mm-hmm. for 100 years. Right. So we, I, I think when we consider what he said about this, we kind of mentally, we don't make note of the fact that there was this 100 years of just abject awfulness that followed mm-hmm.
0: the Civil War. No, you're right. And basically, the white government was forced again to uh, move away from that subjugation.
1: Yes, right. yes, it took... Uh, and uh, the... Um, well, in... 2004, we had a commemoration here at WestCon of the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, hmm. and I was asked to give a talk about it. And my uh, my talk was entitled "Brown versus Board of Education: The Tragic Element," and the tragic element was that it basically it meant uh, not a full fledged abandonment of the federal idea, but but. So significant an intrusion of the federal government into state activities that now we've come to take for granted that the federal government is a kind of supervisor of state governments. Mm-hmm. In fact, much of what goes on in the legislature in Hartford is figuring out how to fund federal programs in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So this, again, is this is entirely unlike Jefferson's model, but it it flowed from the way of finally bringing an end to the awful race problem. Uh, that, you know, that proved more or less intractable. Right. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Then at the uh, conclusion of the book, you write about the University of Virginia.
1: Well, Jefferson, uh, I said before, hoped that there'd be primary and secondary education, too. Mm -hmm. So you come to the end of of the revolution, you still have essentially the social context of the colonial period in Virginia, you have still these few ruling families. Um, I mentioned that about 85 families owned about two-thirds of the land in today's Virginia. When When you got to the House of Burgesses, of course, you were going to be, if you were a member of the House of Burgesses, likely you were from one of those 85 families. And then within the House of Burgesses, there was the same kind of hierarchy. So if you were, say, Patrick Henry, who didn't have an any relatives in the room, Mm -hmm. then you couldn't expect to be on an important committee and you wouldn't end up being the chairman of an important committee and so on. On the other hand, if you were Thomas Jefferson, whose mother's name was Randolph, then when you got to the House of Burgesses, the speaker was a Randolph, the treasurer was a Randolph, the uh, important people were all your Mm -hmm. cousins. Mm -hmm. And these people were the only people who had any kind of education. So (laughs) people might wonder, well, if colonial Virginia had democracy, why did they only elect these people? And one part of the answer is, well, because there wasn't a salary. So who can mm. afford to go to Williamsburg for three months? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other part of it is, well, nobody else had any education. So whom would you elect? Right. Your fellow illiterate blacksmith or Thomas Jefferson? Mm-hmm. And uh, and in fact, there, so strong was the expectation of this that during the revolution, Jefferson said, okay, I've had it with politics. I'm not going to participate anymore. I'm not going to hold any more offices. And then his neighbors immediately elected him to the House of Delegates again anyway. <laughs> right. they, and um, the sergeant at arms basically sent out, "You know, I'm going to drag you to Richmond if you don't come on your own, of your own mm-hmm. free will. So uh, essentially there was this expectation. And Jefferson thought, well, no, we don't want... Authority to descend in families because you could have a really bright person in a family, but then the next guy could be a total loser. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's rich also doesn't mean that he's ethical. So it could be these guys are just self-seeking, inbred people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what he wanted to do was to provide that every child, actually the bill he drafted said every child should have three years of education. And, of course, that raises the question, well, does that mean every female child? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, yes, it did. And then, uh, actually, uh, three decades later, he got a letter from a reforming Quaker. And, of course, Quakers are among the leaders both in Britain and in the U.S. of the anti-slavery mm-hmm. movement. So he got a letter from a reforming Quaker in the 18 teens saying, I'm thinking about organizing education for slaves. And Jefferson wrote back to him and said, well— It's an interesting idea. You know, if you read my bill for establishing religious freedom, the language includes slaves. On the other hand, he said, I'm not sure that people who are going to be in that condition would be happier if educated, which is an interesting Hmm. kind of grim observation. Hmm. Um, But Jefferson hoped that there would be primary uh, education for all, and the reason was that you weren't going to be able to be an effective Republican citizen if you didn't know some reading, writing, arithmetic, mm-hmm. a little bit of history. And in fact, he uh, thought that when it came to secondary schools, which the best primary school uh, students would be sent off to on the public dime, then um, history should be one of the subjects they studied there. So uh, basically, everybody would get three years of school, then the best year, the best of those students plus Whichever wealthy kids' parents wanted to pay for it would go on mm. to the next three years. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of those three years, the regional middle school, uh, the best of those students, plus whichever wealthy kids' par- parents wanted to pay for it, would go on to William & Mary. But he wanted William & Mary, which um, was Colonial Virginia's own, only college. and the, Actually, it was the only college south of Princeton hmm. in the colonial period. Um, he wanted William & Mary to be substantially reformed too. So he wanted it to be a Republican uh, college instead of the elite finishing school it had been. And basically, during the colonial period, if you were educated at William & Mary, or at Harvard, or at King's College, which is now Columbia, mm-hmm. or College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, or Yale, you were going to be educated the same way as you would have been educated if you had been educated in a college in Italy or Germany or England. You're going to be made to learn Greek and Latin, and then you're going to learn Greek and Latin history, and then you're going to learn Greek and Latin philosophy, mm-hmm. and, then, and what do you know when you're done? <laughs> and what good is this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, this is an entree to the elite world you're going to live in. Um, but if I'm Joe the blacksmith's son, what good do I have... Uh, what good do I get from reading Plutarch? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I would argue it's really good to read Plutarch, mm-hmm. and actually knowing Greek is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jefferson loved Greek and Latin. To the end of his life, he read Greek every day. He carried Greek <laughs> uh, books of Plutarch in his pocket when he went writing every afternoon. He would go out and read Plutarch mm-hmm. in Greek, but he thought, if you're the average person, you should be studying Italian or French or Spanish, not Greek and Latin. And the curriculum shouldn't be set for you. You should get to decide for yourself what you'd study in a college. Mm-hmm. Your options should include agronomy and physics and chemistry and geography and math. And and so he wanted there to be practical utility in what one studied. And then he wanted each student to decide on her own what she was going to study. Mm-hmm. Well, this was totally unlike the way any college worked at the time. And besides that, he also uh, pioneered uh, UVA, was the first to have novel instructional methods. So again, if you had gone to school at the Sorbonne or at uh, Oxford Mm -hmm. or at Yale, you would have been uh, assigned something to learn and then you would have come into class a couple of days later and each of the students would have been sitting on benches and then when your name was called, you would stand up and you would give what was called a recitation. Of what you had memorized, and Jefferson said, "Well, uh, there's no thinking involved in that. We should have essay examinations." So he corresponded with a friend of his who was on the the faculty at Harvard. Yes, Jefferson had a friend on the faculty <laughs> at Harvard. He said very negative things about Harvard, but but he had a friend who was on the faculty at Harvard, and he corresponded with this guy, and the guy said, "Oh, I love this." He said, I'm, "I I tried it on my fellow members of the faculty here, and they all said no." And so the The result of that was that while UVA from its opening in 1825 had uh, essay examinations, Harvard didn't have them until the 1850s. Mm. And um, UVA was radically different, not only in the instructional methods and in the curricular uh, offerings and options, but um, it also was different in that it didn't have theology as a central Mm. uh, topic. In fact, if you go to UVA, you see that what's it, what's central to the place is the library. And Jefferson thought, well, this is the way things ought to be. Mm-hmm. The kids ought to study theology. They ought to study the history of, of uh, religion. They ought to study different religions. But it, they shouldn't be made to um, parrot what they're being told. Mm-hmm. So... Um, This was another way that UVA was radically different. And of course, as I'm saying this, you may be thinking, well, that's how Westcon is. That's what I'm thinking. And every other school is Mm -hmm. like this too. And again, we don't even think of Jefferson doing this because everybody does it now. But this was literally novel. This was, UVA was a first. Mm -hmm. So uh, one way of understanding the history of American post-secondary education is we have uh, the colonial period, then we have UVA, and now we have thousands of UVAs all Mm -hmm. over the country. Mm it's really amazing.
0: It is amazing and, and it, it does contribute to uh, American democracy Yes. And the, yeah. the republic.
1: Yeah, and uh, Jefferson not only conceived of UVA, but he, he was compulsive about UVA. He, he had to have his finger in every pie. So hmm. he, uh, of course, was a fabulous, just breathtakingly ingenious architect and he designed all the buildings. On the central grounds of the university, including that spectacular rotunda in the middle, mm-hmm. and he uh, not only did he draw all those those architectural drawings, but then he oversaw the construction. He chose all the materials. He uh, actually would go out on the back step. Uh, he was an old man when this was going mm. on. He he would go out on the back step of. He uh, was in his seventies. He would go out on the back step of Monticello with his spyglass, and he would look at UVA, which is about two miles away down a down a very steep hill and then Mm -hmm. and uh sometimes he would see that they were doing things he didn't like and he would send a message sometimes he would see that they were doing things he didn't like he would get on a horse and gallop over there (laughs) he and uh he also uh chose a guy to be the first law professor at uva and then sent that fellow to europe to recruit professors Mm -hmm. and The first faculty of UVA included professors from leading schools all over Northern Europe. And uh, he and James Madison, whom he recruited to be on the Board of Visitors, Hmm. so these are the last two uh, presidents, they're on the Board of Visitors, and actually the current president at the time, Monroe, was also on the Board of Hmm. Visitors. When when they laid the the cornerstone of the first building at UVA, the incumbent president was there, and he's the one who laid it, Monroe. Hmm and uh, then the three of them and the uh, some of the other people went and had a celebratory dinner which i'm sure involved some miranda that's what they liked but mm. but uh so jefferson uh, and madison uh exchanged several letters where they were discussing what books should be in the library and mm. then what books should be assigned and at one point madison wrote back to jefferson and said well I think maybe the professor should be able to pick what books are assigned. And, and so Jefferson's answer was, well, that's true, except when it comes to government. I think we know best about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, UVA was was different in this sense too. Um, it was a university. Mm-hmm. So when it first opened, the, the guy who was ahead head of Yale at the time wrote, the University of Virginia is America's only university. Mm. It, it had the first medical professor in North America. Mm it had a law professor, it had all these different kinds of majors in the sciences and the arts and so on, and it was the university. Mm-hmm. And Harvard had you know, only the few old topics you could study, so it was not a university.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. And you, you don't, there is nobody probably in the world like that anymore, right? Who could no. really create a, a university or well, do that kind of project?
1: Well, I'll tell you. Uh, The thing that's really just daunting about Thomas Jefferson is, he would become interested in something, and then he would become a leader. Hmm. He'd end up arguing with Buffon about about biology, Mm -hmm. or he he would decide he was interested in American Indians. He told Lewis and Clark to gather lexicons of Indians. He conducted the first scientific archaeological excavation ever in the Western Hemisphere. He drew those sketches for UVA, which are just brilliant. They're just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. The, buildings, the buildings are beautiful. Fortunately, the particular region of Virginia that UVA is in has the perfect color of red-orange brick. Mm. The, the, the clay gives you that just wonderful color. But then Jefferson took classical and Renaissance models and and improved them. Mm-hmm. So... It's amazing. and So he's this brilliant architect. He knows the state of the art in various sciences. And uh, the, the political columnist and economist, Thomas Sowell uh, wrote about 20 years ago um, that he as a black man thought one thing that people ought to recognize is that today we all benefit from slavery. Hmm. Everybody, white and black, Every color in America, we all benefit from slavery. And what did Thomas Sowell mean by that? Well, what he meant was, we all have this constitution that James Madison and those guys couldn't have come up with if they hadn't had free time. Mm -hmm. And why did they have free time? (laughs) And that Thomas Jefferson was drawing those architectural sketches, overseeing the establishment of the University of Virginia, revolutionizing revolutionizing post-secondary education Mm. in America. Why did he have time for that? Because... Other people were doing the physical work mm-hmm. on his farm. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, we don't want to overlook that, but um, leaving that aside, even if you just choose one area of endeavor, right. if you became an architect, <laughs> are you going to be that kind of an architect? If you became a scientist, mm-hmm. are, are you going to be au courant with you know, eight fields. Mm-hmm. And he knew everything there was to know at the time about political science, too. He could, he could dispute with anybody who wanted to say anything about it. it it's just, it's uh, somewhat astounding. And, and another thing, of course, maybe the thing he's most famous for is his writing was mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. So I tell my, again, I tell my undergraduates, uh, just go to the library find a book of Jefferson's writings, pick it up, open at random, read four or five sentences and think, I wish for five minutes I could write like that. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, (laughs) so it wasn't just because of what he was reading either, because I read, uh, this is what I do for a living. I read people who uh, lived in his time and Mm -hmm. and were working on the same kinds of things and none of them wrote like that, you know? So uh, it was, he was brilliant. Mm -hmm. He was just brilliant. And it wasn't just brilliance. His friend Madison was brilliant, but he had a one track mind. Mm-hmm. He was a brilliant constitutional thinker. Jefferson was brilliant. Whatever he touched, he mastered and then transformed. Mm-hmm. Really something. It's remarkable. Yeah, he was remarkable.
0: But he was in this era where uh, there was Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and. That's Adams it. And, uh... You've
1: named them all. <laughs> no, those, actually, those are your, uh, your world famous Americans. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, and there were other people who were important politicians, mm-hmm. or you know, kind of uh, subordinate military figures who were important in our history. I mean, other countries have that, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, those people. Actually, my my favorite story about the rep- international reputation of any of these people is that um, apparently George the Third was sitting in a park with. Some other people having conversation, I guess, eating or drinking or something. And and then a a messenger came in and handed him a message that said George Washington had just resigned Hmm. as commander in chief of the army during the revolution. Hmm. And supposedly uh, the king read this note and then he put it down and he said, my God, he really is the greatest man in the world because obviously Georgia never thought of resigning right Right? you don't resign from being the conquering general you just name yourself duke right right no so it's astounding Mm -hmm. yeah it is astounding and again jefferson was born at the apex of his society and he decided to eliminate all four of those major pillars and equalize people
0: yeah that is astounding it is you just can't imagine it happening now no so, you are a student of this era, and these people, these men who were so incredible. how does it what's it like then, as you living in this era and uh, these politicians and our political leaders now?
1: Well, do you uh,
0: compare them and say, "Gee, whiz
1: well, one thing that you uh, one thing being a historian of this period that I work on means is you have a lot more perspective. Mm. You know, commonly commentators and politicians uh, refer to our contemporaries as the greatest this or the most important that or the smartest whatever. And Mm -hmm. and my attitude is, you know, we've had 44 guys who've been president. I mean, we call Trump the 45th president even though Cleveland counts twice. That to me makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So we've had 44 guys who've been president of the United States. And if you ask the typical historian, what do you think, how would you classify those? They say, well, you know, 10 of them were great. And no, 10 of them weren't great. Maybe three of them were, maybe four mm-hmm. were great. Mostly they're mediocre or sub mm-hmm. And is that surprising? People are mostly mediocre. So if you, That's right. if you pay attention, right. you know, they're just, it's false. There's a lot of puffery that goes on. And mm-hmm. having a little bit of perspective means... That you just see, you know, it's kind of run of the mill stuff. Mm-hmm. I actually, when I was a young person, I had the idea that I wanted to be a politician. Mm-hmm. So, my first time around in grad school, I went to law school and got a master of public affairs degree at the same time. I thought I'd go out and be a politician. Mm-hmm. And then the Cold War ended, and I decided, you know, there's really nothing important to do in politics now. We're mm-hmm. going to be arguing about marginal capital gains rates and and, uh, you know, how, how we're going to fund Social Security, and who cares? Mm-hmm. So I decided I'm not going to do that. It's far more interesting to think about how people conceived of government, what, what the structure ought to be, why they thought it ought to have particular elements and not others, how they arrived at decisions about the role that, say, state legislators would have in choosing members of Congress, these kinds of things, I think, are of enduring significance. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, I again, I tell my undergraduates, I think 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, there are two Americans thus far who will be remembered. One is Washington, and the other one is Neil Armstrong. Mm. And everybody else is just kind of, you know, they're significant to us because we're right next to them. Right. Yeah, but, you know, my, my kids are important to me. My parents mm-hmm. are important to me. 100 years from now, they're not going to, you know. Right but um somebody like jefferson uh is significant because he his hopes for the polity are i think the most attractive vision i know of mm-hmm. for the american polity and it doesn't look much like that now All right and in fact i think in recent decades we've we've moved closer to the point where uh, we accept that there won't be a kind of diffusion, not only within the you know governmental structure diffusion from the federal government out to the states and so on, but we've gotten to the idea now that having gone to one or the other of two universities will be a prerequisite to many of the highest offices. And right. This is entirely arbitrary. You can't prove that people who go to Harvard, or as a group, more intelligent than people who go to Berkeley or mm-hmm. UVA or mm-hmm. any of fifty other places, but that's just the way it's come to work. Right. So it's it's really dispiriting. I mm-hmm. think Jefferson would hate that. <laughs> yes, right? and that, that's exactly. I think there are very few things about the way that uh, things have changed that are appealing. I mean, obviously the the current uh, resolution of the racial issue is mm-hmm. highly. Uh, unlikely and positive, mm-hmm. right? It's worked mm-hmm. out much better than he hoped. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he, as I said before, he did foresee that there'd be this long, terrible element of the story. Um, but when it comes to... And, of course, the technological... He liked technological mm-hmm. uh, doodads and whiz-bangs and was constantly inventing little things and so on. Um, but as far as concentration of social and intellectual authority, political authority... Uh, that's not desirable. It's not right. necessary. I don't mm-hmm. know why people accept it. Mm-hmm. So, alas.
0: <laughs> well, that's probably a good place to end our conversation today. I always like to thank Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio for making this uh, worldwide podcast possible. I'd like to remind everyone to uh, search on iTunes or SoundCloud for WCSU Media for this and all the Westcon podcasts, and I want to thank uh, my guest today Kevin Guzman for a really interesting conversation. I was happy to be here Thank you